Let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you, not, do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. For it is God's servant for you, for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant, the avenger, that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Therefore, you must submit, not only because of wrath, but because of your conscience. And for this reason, you pay taxes. Since the authorities are God's servants, continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligation to everyone. Taxes to those who owe taxes, tolls to those who owe tolls. Respect to those who you owe respect, and honor to those who honor. This is a reading from Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Heavenly Father, I just pray, Lord, for your presence today. I pray for David. May he just say the words that you want him to say. May we hear the words that you want us to hear. Lord, we just uh, live in a, a time where true north is hard to find. Our government is, is far from perfect, Lord. We're far from perfect, but you are perfect, Lord. May we seek you in that and just walk towards that true north, and may we hear about that today for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Byron. Y'all nervous? Did you feel like there needed to be some ominous music behind that? It's going to be fun, I promise. For me, anyway. <clears throat> With each uh, passing year, it seems that our country is more and more divided into two very distinct, uh, very separate extremes. What's more is that the more we are divided, the more we are convinced that the other side, however you define the other side, is probably the epitome of evil. And if they win, it will be the end of our nation as we know it. You know, there's this constant feeling of impending doom, the rhetoric of every campaign becoming darker and heavier. We hear her words like Hitler and Nazis just thrown around, constantly told of a war on our freedoms and our religion and our belief systems and our way of life. 
over the last two decades, every single campaign has been the most important campaign in the history of our government. Every election is the last chance to save our country. Every election is vital to our personal security and financial security and national security. Every election is the last opportunity to prevent the Huns and Visigoths from sacking Rome. We live in a world where we are constantly standing on the edge of the apocalypse, and it is exhausting. The crazy thing is smack dab in the middle of all of that madness, we find the American church. The word evangelical used to describe a particular type of Christians. It used to describe um, a specific type of Christian that had particular beliefs about the centrality of the cross, um, about the importance of a personal conversion and a personal relationship with a living Savior about the Bible. In recent years, that same word, that word evangelical, has come to describe a political voting block. And politicians get that. They recognize that. And they spend an exorbitant amount of time and energy and money trying to convince that particular voting block that the other candidate would surely mean their doom does not represent their beliefs, or the Bible that is out to destroy the evangelical way of life in modern America. i got to be honest. We come by it honestly. It's because the, the history of the church and America is very unique and intimate, and because of that, God and country have sadly become intertwined. Lines have unfortunately gotten blurred, and it is getting more and more difficult to separate the two in the hearts and minds of citizens and believers. During this series, our aim is to confront cultural issues that swirl around us in our real lives every single day. Our hope is to train ourselves in these issues to think biblically. as opposed to being spoon-fed by our neighbors or our co-workers or the media, wherever you choose to consume your media, but instead running back to the living, breathing Word of God, allowing it to be our fixed point, magnetizing our compasses to this, so that it may be a guide as we walk through these prickly subjects in real life. 
if we are to have the conversation about politics, if we are to run back to the Scriptures to be our true north, there are many places we're going to need to look. But perhaps the best place to start is that passage that Byron read for us this morning. In Romans chapter 13, those first seven verses. To understand these verses, first of all, you need to know a little bit of context about Romans itself. Most of you that were with us this summer remember that that we went through the first eight chapters of Romans throughout the entire summer. That first eight chapters of Romans is the most complete treatment of the gospel of Jesus Christ, perhaps that has ever been written. Paul then has a section in the middle, chapters 9 through 11, where he answers basically one question. And that one question is, if you are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone, what does that mean to God's chosen people, the Jews? And what does that say about God? He spends three chapters talking about God's sovereignty. Starting in chapter 12 is where he begins the practical application section of his class. If the gospel is what we say it is, if God is sovereign as we believe he is, this is what it looks like to live it out in everyday life. In doing so, starting in chapter 13, he begins to address the relationship between Christ followers and the government. Keep in mind, he's writing to Rome. Now, Rome had kind of this crazy political system. You had three different parties, one of which was Caesar, the emperor. Um, If you know anything about Roman history, you know there was a great deal of paranoia. The term backstabbing, I mean, that's Julius Caesar and A2 Brute and all of that. They all got a little stabby. It happened over and over and over again, and it created, it created this kind of chaotic paranoia that just covered over the entire empire. Religiously, it was polytheistic. You know, you had the pantheon and all the Roman gods, one of which was Caesar. He was to be worshipped as a god. In the middle of all that, we see in Acts chapter 17 that every Jew and every Christian was exiled from Rome. Now, when Nero came into power, Nero decides he's going to bring him back. Despite the fact that he brought the Christians back, there was still a great deal of mistrust from the Roman citizens looking at the Christians. Their lives were so different. They did not, the Roman citizens didn't see the Christians at the Pantheon worshiping the Roman gods. They, they, didn't see the Christians recognizing Caesar as a god, which you were supposed to do. There were actual real questions about whether or not the Christians were cannibals. These rumors of they get together and, and they talk about eating the body and drinking the blood, and there was a great deal of confusion. Because of that, there was cultural, social persecution of the Christians. The Christians were driven underground, not because it was illegal to be a Christian at that time, but because they were so marginalized. Nero was getting more and more paranoid. Persecution was beginning to grow. Eventually, Nero would just go crazy. He would burn Rome, uh, blame it on the Christians. 
real, brutal, horrific persecution began, Paul got caught up that and was executed by Nero himself. It is into that context, into that government, that Paul writes these words. Let everyone submit to the governing authorities. That is no doubt exactly what the Christians in Rome wanted to hear Paul say. Let everyone submit to the governing authorities. That word submit that Paul writes there in chapter 13, verse 1, it's a willing act. It's not, hey guys, you have no choice. What Paul is saying is, as a Christ follower that is living out their faith in everyday life, when you're thinking about the relationship between you and the government, step one is to willingly subject yourself to their authority. To willingly submit is to recognize your place, your subordinate place in this hierarchy of authority. But as a Christ follower, it's also to recognize that God himself is the pinnacle of that hierarchy of authority. Now, that word submit, as an American, we already naturally begin to bristle. We are not a submissive people. We are a people that loves our own personal freedom. We don't like being told what to do. No retreat, no surrender. I was about to make a UT football joke, but I won't. (laughs) Sorry, that was common. Um, It's a word that just hearing it makes us pump the brakes a little bit. Wait just a second. I'm not exactly sure what I feel about this thing, submit. And to willingly submit myself, that doesn't make any sense either. Certainly not to a government that I don't agree with. I don't like that at all. We need to understand there is a difference between submit and obey. In the ancient Greek, in which Paul was writing, there are two different words. They overlap a lot. Nine times out of ten, perhaps 99 times out of 100. We display our submission through obedience. But they are not the same. There are exceptions, and we see them throughout the entire Scripture. When the government to which we have submitted ourselves asks us to disobey God's law, we continue to submit ourselves to the authority of the government, but God's law is our ultimate authority. We see it throughout the Bible. Exodus 1, Pharaoh tells um, all of the women to throw the babies in the river so that they may uh, drown The Jewish midwives disobey that command, recognizing that would be in disobedience of God's ultimate authority to do so. 
Daniel chapters 3 and 6. In chapter 3, we see Daniel's buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're told that they must worship this gigantic statue made by King Nebuchadnezzar as a god. They refuse to do so. They are thrown in the fiery furnace. Three chapters later, Daniel himself is asked the same thing. He also refuses, recognizing God's ultimate authority. God is at the hierarchy. I mean, God is at the pinnacle of that hierarchy of authority. He's thrown in the lion's den. Go all the way to Acts. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John. They are busted for preaching about Jesus. And they go in front of the government. The government says you can't do that anymore. And they say, guys, we get it. That's for you to figure out. But you need to know you're not the boss of me. I can't stop talking about Jesus. One chapter later in Acts chapter 5, Peter again is caught preaching about Jesus. And the authorities say, I just told you. I just told you you can't do that. And Peter says, I have to obey God and not you. Submission and obedience largely overlap, but they do not always. China, the Middle East, today in 2019, you might still be required by the government to do something that will be in disobedience of God's ultimate authority. The Bible gives us precedent on how to act in those situations. Now, understand this. You do not live in China, and you do not live in the Middle East. Disagreeing with the government is not being required to to disobey God's law. We are in a completely different context. Recognizing those exceptions exist. I can't think of an example in which our culture today is one. Now, some of you might be thinking, all right, well, Paul wrote this before Nero was running around executing people. My guess is Paul probably regretted it as he was taking those final steps to his own execution, looking around, seeing the Christians that had been burned at the stake, wishing he had a mulligan. I would encourage you to flip over to 1 Peter. Peter was Paul's brother in arms. Peter was a disciple of Christ. Peter was Jesus' closest friend. Peter wrote this letter in the midst of the brutal, terrifying, horrific persecution of Christ followers. Potentially even after Paul himself was executed. If you read with me 1 Peter chapter 2 starting in verse 13. Peter tells believers, submit to every human authority because of the Lord. 
whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. Peter mirrors what Paul writes in Romans chapter 13, both men inspired by the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say, For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of the foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, willingly, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. It sounds like madness, completely counterintuitive to everything we have been taught as a proudly rebellious nation. I I, want to be clear. When Paul says, willingly, Submit, willingly subject yourselves to government authorities. When Peter says, submit yourself to every human authority, including the emperor, they're not giving any exceptions. They don't say, unless the government does this. They don't say, unless you don't like what they stand for. I wish they did, but they do not. Willingly submit to the authority of every government, even those that are corrupt and evil. Now, having said that, let's look at the other end of the spectrum. Because we must also recognize there is no such thing as a Christian government. I'm just going to let that hang there for a minute. There is no such thing as a Christian nation. Now, there are nations that were founded on Judeo-Christian ethics. There are nations that lead their people well. There are nations that in many ways reflect the moral compass we've been given in the Word of God. But to be a Christian is to personally and individually accept the free grace of Jesus Christ. To personally and individually have a relationship with Him as Savior and Lord. A corporate government cannot do that. There is no distinction. What Paul unpacks for us in this passage in Romans chapter 13 is the idea that to submit to the government in the place you have been planted is an act of submission to God. God is the one that allowed each of those governments to be in place. Jesus himself, John chapter 19, he's standing in front of Pilate hours before his execution. He refuses to defend himself. Pilate says to him, 
you do understand that I have the power to either let you go free or to have you killed. And Jesus says, what I understand is you have no power other than what my Father has given you to submit to the government is to submit to God. Now, what does that look like? Just about a century after Paul wrote those words in Romans, the Greek philosopher Dionysus, he, he writes this about Christians. Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. For nowhere do they live in cities of their own, nor do they speak some unusual dialect, nor do they practice an eccentric lifestyle. While they live in both Greek and barbarian cities, as each one's lot was cast, and follow the local customs in dress and food and other aspects of life, at the same time, they demonstrate the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. They live in their own countries, but as refugees. They participate in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland, and every fatherland is foreign. A non-Christian Greek philosopher described believers in that way a hundred years after Paul told those in Rome that were being persecuted and killed, submit to governing authorities. A non-Christian Greek philosopher recognized that Christians were a citizen of a different nation, the kingdom of heaven, had an ultimate authority even where they were, even as they practiced as citizens. It, it reflects what we saw in the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 29. The Jews had been exiled there in the kingdom of Babylon under foreign rule. God, through his prophet Jeremiah, tells them, most of you are going to die before you ever get home. Most of you are going to live your entire lives under foreign rule that does not recognize me as God, that does not follow my commands. But in, in Jeremiah 29 verses 4 through 7, what God tells his people is while you are there, plant roots. While you are there, have families, build homes, bless the country that you're in. Pray for it to thrive because, because when it's healthy, so are you. You are citizens of the kingdom of God. But in the meantime, honor where you are. Now, it wasn't always like that. 
If you go further back in the history of the Jews and the history of God's chosen people, all the way back to, to Abraham, God makes the covenant with Abraham that his descendants would be many, they would make a great nation, God would bless the entire world with them. Fast forward to Moses. God reestablishes that covenant, Mount Sinai. He gives Moses the law before they enter into the promised land, a part of that law. And another way that God's people would be separate and distinct, set apart from the rest of the world is God said, you're not going to have a king. I'm your king. We see a pattern emerge in the relationship between God as king and his people. A need would arise, and God would raise up a judge. Through that judge, the people would be delivered. Another need would arise. God would raise up another judge. Through that judge, the people would be delivered. Lather, rinse, repeat. Seventeen judges over time. But then in 1 Samuel chapter 8, things start to change. Suddenly... The Jews are tired. They're scared. They look around at the kingdoms around them and they think, I want that. I'm tired of the uncertainty. I'm tired of anxiety. And they demand that Samuel appoint an earthly king to lead them so that they might have what other nations have so that they may have military power so that they may have economic stability so that they may have security amongst the other nations Samuel we're tired of this God as king thing give us an earthly king and God did God honored that request. To this day, the vast and overwhelming majority of Jews have never recognized Jesus as the Messiah because in their mind, the Messiah was going to be the ultimate king that would bring them that military power and economic stability and security that they so desperately desired and they've never had. All they've wanted is a king. Now here comes the hardest part to listen to this morning. I believe that the modern American church in many ways finds itself in the exact same place the nation of Israel was in in 1 Samuel chapter 8. We are tired, we are anxious, we are afraid, we're desperately searching for safety and security and certainty. As such, we are demanding a king, forgetting that God is our king. As such, Many of us are putting our faith 
in an earthly government. Are we in danger of giving up our distinctiveness as God's people? So that we might deal with this anxiety that has been building in our spirits for a little more certainty, for a little less fear. Are we in danger of substituting Jesus for something far less worthy? Of missing the true Messiah because we're looking for earthly stability and security and power? Are we in danger of placing our faith in an earthly government because we, we think that somehow we're going to create order in this world? We're fooling ourselves into thinking through a government we might enforce the will of God. That is not what submission looks like. That is what idolatry looks like. Hear me say this this morning. If in your life you find yourself more concerned about the state of our country than the gospel of Jesus Christ, America has become an idol in your life. When everyone around us is afraid of the future, crying out for a king in the form of a particular candidate or a political party or a Supreme Court justice or a a strong military or whatever it is. When everyone around us is afraid and crying out for a king, will we, a holy nation of believers, distinct and set apart, rest assured in the reality, in the fact that God is our king, holy and completely sovereign. Now this morning, I do want to recognize that we don't live in China. We don't live in the Middle East and we don't live in ancient Rome. We live in a place that we have a voice We live in a place that we have a choice. And that is to be celebrated. That is not to be taken for granted. Good citizenship is a matter of stewardship. God has blessed us to be in a place where we can practice our religion freely, to be in a place that we can elect our leaders. As such, as being good stewards of those resources, 
we are called to inform ourselves on the issues. We are called to vote as we have been led. Also understand this. The person next to you in the pews may be led to vote in a different direction, and that is okay. That is what is to be celebrated. There are those of us that are called to actually get involved and serve. If you are that person, I would encourage you to do so. Serving all the while recognizing the ultimate authority is your God and not your political party. As you are informing yourself, as you are voting the way the Holy Spirit has led you in your life, if you find yourself judging those the Holy Spirit has led in a different direction, if you find yourself losing sleep at night because the other person may win, I want you to ask where you have placed your faith. Getting involved and being a good citizen. We are called to do that. All the while recognizing the ultimate authority and sovereignty is in our King. He is Lord over all. This morning... I want you to remember two things because there's only two things that I can promise you. Regardless of who is in the White House, regardless of what power is, what party is in power in America, America is not eternal. But the kingdom of heaven is. It alone will last. Borders will move. Nations will fall. But the church, the body of believers, will stand eternal. In the meantime, we are called as followers of Christ to bless our nation through faith, through love, through humility, and through our willingness to stand on the promises of God. That is what it looks like to submit to our governing authority and submit to the ultimate authority of our King. Guys, this morning is a morning to celebrate. It's a morning to stand up and recognize how blessed we are that we can have faith and stand on the ultimate authority. Would you take a moment to pray with me?
God, we, um, live in uncertain times. Remind us this morning of the certainty that is you. Allow us to bless our community through love and through humility. Allow us to reflect your glory into our world and remind us of where the ultimate power lies. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.